If you have a Bible, you may like to turn to John chapter 8, which is where you have arrived in your studies in John, on a Sunday morning anyway. Are you there in your groups as well, or are you way behind? Because there's so much to talk about, isn't there? Yeah. John's Gospel. Father, we, we offer ourselves to you in worship. We sit at your feet and gaze at you, the one who has done such wonderful things for us, which we do not deserve and have contributed nothing towards, but we are the recipients of outrageous love and extraordinary grace and mercy that comes to us fresh and new every morning. We are totally in your debt, Lord. And we adore you for you are God worthy of praise and adoration. There is no one like you. And you graciously speak to us. We thank you for the gift of your word, for the process by which we can sit here with it on our laps and read it in a language we understand. We thank you for all those, Lord, who through the years have helped us understand your word more and more. And now we turn to you, Lord, and ask that your Holy Spirit, the inspirer of your word, who is with us now, a gift from you to us, will lead us into the truth that sets us free. In Jesus' name. So that we might live in the good of what we read, of what we hear, of what we understand, and of what your Holy Spirit will help us to obey. Thank you, Lord. We want to live to the praise of your glorious name. Amen. I'm reading from verse 31 and to the end of the chapter. I'll read the last verse of the previous section just to make the connection, or the last two verses. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him, says Jesus. And even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, Yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, 
they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. In our family, over the last three months, we've had three funerals of elderly members. Um, one was 99, one was 97, and one was 86. So they had good lives, didn't they? The 99-year-old really didn't want to see 100. She didn't, wasn't hanging on. She'd been hanging on since about 90, wanting to go and see the Lord. When you get to that sort of age, there's really only one thing in your mind, surely? What happens at death? Jesus says here, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Because at such a point of life, all the things that have occupied life up to that point seem to be unimportant, don't they? When you're perhaps limited as one of those ladies was to her own bed all day long, every day, other things become unimportant. Well, Jesus lays down exactly what it is that separates spurious faith from true faith, fickle disciples from true disciples. That's what all this is about. 
And remember, as we read it, of course, you've read it many times before in your daily readings and in Sundays and so forth. You know the way the story goes. You know how these verses go on and where they're going to. The first people to read this, and they weren't readers, they were actually listeners. Someone was reading it aloud, had no idea what was coming. You sometimes have to read the Bible like that, as if you didn't know what was coming. It has a freshness about it then. I hope you do know what's coming, but if you can put that to one side. So, verse 30 says, Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And he uses, John uses exactly the language that you would use for anyone who's coming to faith in Jesus and becoming a true disciple. And then he goes on, To the Jews who have believed in him. It's the same word that you would use as someone who truly believes in Jesus. We don't know where this is going, if we don't know the story. But by verse 59, you know exactly where it's gone, don't you? These people who it says here put their faith in Jesus, these people who it says here believed in him, picked up stones to stone him. Are they true believers? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's what Jesus is dealing with from verse 32 onwards. Because it sounds like a tough one, doesn't it? That these believe in him and he starts haranguing them almost. And you think, this is really odd. But Jesus never went to collect converts. He was not interested in gathering large numbers. A number of times he actually almost pushes people away. He doesn't push people away, but it's almost as if he does. He deliberately avoids big crowds. He doesn't do the things that people are expecting him to do. And that sometimes he actively discourages people from following him. You'll know the reference in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 57 onwards, where people say, I'll follow you, Lord. And he said, whoa, hang on a moment. And then says something that almost kind of ties their ankles together. And you're thinking, come on, Lord, if you want people to follow you, surely you'll take every volunteer. And he says, I don't want volunteers. I want people whose lives are changed. Because he's not looking for converts, he's looking for whole life disciples. People who are going to follow him right to the end. And this is why my stepmother at the age of 99 had for the last, oh I don't know, 10 years at least, been longing to go home. To see, she knew where she was going. She had served the Lord for most of that very long life. A beautiful lady who just shone with the glory of God. Literally, her face used to shine with her love for Jesus. And she just was longing to go. Someone had pursued right to the end. And hers had been a tough life. She brought up four boys. That's pretty tough, isn't it? But there were lots of other things as well. She had seen difficulties. But she persevered to the end. So Jesus says to the Jews who believed him, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. In chapter 15, he'll talk about abiding in me. If you don't abide in me, you'll produce nothing. But if you abide in me, it's the same idea. Holding on, persevering, keeping going. Taking hold of what Jesus has taught us and then living it out. We'll never understand everything. I say that to comfort myself as well as you. But when we get to see him, we'll know other things face to face. But it's not a question of knowing everything. It's a question of doing what we know we do. I think it was... Um, and his name's gone completely out of, me, out of mind. Anyway, some guy said, it's not the bits of the Bible I don't understand that give me the problems. It's the bits of the Bible I do understand that give me the problems. 
So what we're talking about here is not a deepened understanding of the scriptures, hopefully that is coming, but it's understanding and obeying and persevering with what we do know. And what we do know is the basic things, isn't it? So it's the one who continues in the teaching of Jesus, who continues to hold on to it, to work it out, to live it out, persevering to the end, who will be truly free. So of course the, disciple, the, um, the Jews say, what? We belong to Abraham. We've, we've never been slaves. Actually, they have, haven't they? Just about every major um, empire has had them in slavery at some point or other, haven't they? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the per Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, and now the Romans. They've been virtually in slavery for the last 500 years, almost without a break. But they're not talking about that. You see, when we talk about the Gospel, and remember that John is writing about Jesus. Jesus is wanting to show people what the Kingdom of God is like. He's not come to tell us nice stories. He's not even come just to do nice things and make life comfortable for us. He comes to show us what the Kingdom of God is like and invite us to join the Kingdom of God. And when the Gospel writers write it down, what they're writing is to particular people who are thinking they really need to see this truth. Otherwise they got it wrong. So John is keen that the church shouldn't be flooded with half-hearted converts who are going to give up at the first hurdle. He wants people to come in knowing what they've, as it were, signed up to and will persevere to the end. It does no one any benefit at all if we say to people, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Because it's not true. Have I shocked you? I meant to. Because if you talk about the gospel, you have to join the message to two very important points. If you don't do that, you leave people hanging. For example, if I say to someone, in this, if this congregation were full of, let's say, homeless, poor, unemployed people, and I said, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved, they'll interpret that in terms of home for them and work for them and money, they'll do that. Obviously, wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they do that? But I can't say that because that doesn't necessarily follow. You've got to remember that when the Bible is written, a third of the world was in slavery. The Babylonians took the entire Jewish nation into slavery. The whole shooting match. They were all slaves. And therefore they were at the mercy of their slave masters. And if I as a bright preacher came and said, all your problems will be solved, well then get us out of this then. And it wouldn't have happened, would it? If you've gone to the deep south in America in the 1800s and said, come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved, they say, good, the slavery is ended. No, it hasn't. Tomorrow will be exactly the same as today. Unless you join this message to two points. And the first point, of course, is Genesis 3. The fall. You have to say that the thing Jesus has come to set you free from is not slavery to the Romans or to the Babylonians or to the North Americans or any other kind of slavery like that. He's come to set us free from the slavery to sin. Isn't this what Jesus says? Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In Jesus' eyes, Caesar 
the freest person on the planet at the time he's writing here is actually a slave, isn't he? Because he's a slave to sin. So the message we speak is a message that addresses this issue, which is still the same issue. If any of you are historians, I'm not, and you've gone through even recent Western history, you have to say that it doesn't matter who's in charge, the place is a mess, isn't it? The world is a mess. It doesn't matter who's in charge. There are these moments that we have these general elections and things in this country. They have presidential elections in other countries. They have changes of, of uh, leadership in other countries. But basically, after a little bit of sort of high spot of hopefulness, it all deteriorates rapidly, doesn't it? And if you watch out in our country, for example, you find that even governments that stay in government for quite a long time, eventually we get fed up with them. And they get pushed out with a landslide to the other lot, don't we? And we think, they're going to do it better. But they don't, do they? I'm not, I'm not trashing politicians. Please don't think that. I honour them as people who are trying to do hard work. But in the end, the problem is this one, isn't it? It just keeps resurging all the time. It doesn't matter what you lay on top of it. It keeps resurging. The Second World War was started in the most civilised part of the world. So what does civilization do? Just lay a little layer over this problem. So when Jesus says, I've come to set you free, it's this problem he set us free. Not your slavery to the Romans, or your impoverishedness because you haven't got a job, or whatever else it may be. That's the problem he's talking about. Slave to sin. And the older I get, the more I know that was true. And by God's grace is not quite so true now but I'm being saved praise the Lord and we've been saying that this morning haven't we rejoicing in what God has done in us it's been a right message to speak now a slave has no permanent place in the family well he wouldn't do would he he can be given away sold killed whatever you want a slave has no claim on the family he's just a commodity but a son belongs to the family and Jesus is the son of God so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I've come to set you free from this. And of course their problem is, they think, well hang on a minute. Abraham, our great father in the far distant past, and remember Abraham is as far earlier than Jesus' day than we are after Jesus' day. So they're looking way, way back and they're saying, wasn't he a good guy? And we're the descendants. Wasn't he given promises from God? And doesn't that matter? And aren't we in a privileged position? And Jesus says, absolutely not. No, you're not. Genuine disciples are not just those who can trace their human genealogy back to any particular place. It's people whose hearts are changed. And this is what Jesus is trying to get over to people. And he's saying these to people who really think that because they can trace their line to a certain person and say, because he had the promises of God, we have the promises of God, and we're okay, we're safe. And Jesus has to disabuse them of that different thing. What he means is by freedom and slavery is that the mere physical connection with Abraham won't save you. What you need is a new change. To Nicodemus, he's already said, it's like, a, it's like a new birth, a new beginning. Being a Jewish rabbi won't save you, Nicodemus. Something more profound. Of course, he reacts in the same way. What are you talking about? You can't be born again. It's ridiculous. Because he's thinking physically, isn't he? As he would do. 
And Jesus is thinking spiritually, much deeper level. He's going to so turn this little group upside down that they're going to start swearing at him and being rude to him. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? It's like a big smack in the face. They hated, loathed, detested Samaritans. It's very rude, very abusive, because they don't know quite where Jesus is going. It just doesn't make any sense to them. It sounds like demon possession, but he says, if you knew the God you say you follow, then it would become clear. So unless we know we are truly sinners, we won't ever hear what God's message is, which is perhaps why across the world it's the poor people that often respond to the message of the gospel more quickly than the people in power. Because they know, they know what it's like to be on the bottom of the pile and without the help of someone else, they're never going to make it. And someone comes along and says, there's someone who cares about people like you, who comes to help people like you, they're going to go, yeah, bring it on, aren't they? Whereas the powerful say, I actually don't need anyone. I'm okay, thank you very much. Which is what these folk are thinking. The practice of sin proves that one is a slave to sin. And by that definition, my friends, you have to say that most of our country is in slavery to sin. And they can't do anything about it. Which is the tragedy of the world, isn't it? Which means that endlessly you see the same patterns of behaviour all the time. Because what practising sin does is actively enslave people. It doesn't leave you unchanged. Eventually, I think there are little glimmers now of the, even our countries realising that some of the things we've encouraged people to do actually enslave them. And we're beginning to dawn on us that that's happening. We Christians have known that for years, haven't we? But eventually people say, oh, it does matter what you look at then. It does matter what you do. Because it enslaves us. And that's why you can only keep it on, under lids for so long. Eventually it will find its way out. The ultimate bondage is not enslavement to politics or to economic structures, but is rebellion against the God who made us, the God whom Jesus knows. And he says, the reason you don't receive my word is because you're like your father, the devil, which is very rude, isn't it? In one way, but it's true. Because there's only two groups of people in the world, those with God and those without God. It's just the two groups, isn't it? And the Bible calls them the kingdom of the Son he loves and the dominion of darkness. And there's no other alternative. You can't sit on a fence because there isn't one there. You're either in one or the other. It's hard stuff, isn't it? And the reason Jesus is talking about this is because he wants with all his hearts these people to change. He's not saying, I don't want you in the kingdom. I hope you'll never come in the kingdom. That's the last thing he's saying. He wants them in the kingdom, but he wants them in the kingdom with the eyes opened. And until they understand what their problem is, they'll never go for the solution, will they? Which, of course, is the cross. This is where the message must always connect. From the fall to the cross. The cross solves this problem. If it solves other problems, well and good. But this is the problem it solves. God in his grace heals people of their physical illnesses. Praise the Lord. He gives people work who haven't got work. Praise the Lord. There are all sorts of byproducts of this, but this is the issue that the cross solves. This one. Because this is the fundamental 
very important one. Paul would write, a man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. So Jesus is the only liberator, and he's come to change everyone, the Jew and the Gentile too. So in the end, it will be their actions that speak louder than their words. In the end, it's our lifestyle that proves to the extent to which we have accepted and persevered with the word of God. Now you have to say that carefully to sensitive people like you lot. Because actually we're all aware of the way we sit, we fail, aren't we? And if you don't qualify that, people just go away feeling condemned. Oh, I got it wrong again. If we say we're not without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. John wrote that to somebody else, didn't he? So we know we sin. But we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous and he is the sacrifice and offering of God for our sins. Praise the Lord for that. So we come aware of our sinfulness but aware more than that of the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the new start. Every Sunday should be a new start for us, shouldn't it? Where the past is gone and the new week starts as an open book. Every day should be a new start, shouldn't it? As we say, Lord, I have sinned, but you save me. Your grace comes to me every day, new and fresh. And this is what Jesus wants to get through to them. And this is what John has compiling his gospel so that people would know. You see, he gives a reason for it, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, because it's worth repeating, and I didn't get it the first time, so perhaps you didn't either. Chapter 20, verse 31, is this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why he's writing it. Not to push people away, but to draw people to him. To draw them to him. And you can read that this way. These are written that you may believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, is Jesus. Because they've been putting him to one side and looking still for the Messiah. And he says, this is the Messiah. This is why he's writing this stuff, so people will know. This is where you put your hands together. So our message, my friends, the message of the Gospel, is that the cross deals with this issue, and this is still the big issue. Don't be confused by people's posh clothes. Don't be confused by the wealth of this particular nation. Don't be confused. Most of our nation, if we read the statistics right, are in slavery to sin, and they don't know where to go. And the message of the Gospel is still that message. If the Son will set you free, you will be free indeed. And we as Christians need to hold on to that and for God to reveal it in a deeper way to know this is what changes people's lives the word of God the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes will you permit me a story at the end you'll enjoy the story we all like stories don't we this is where you settle back and say oh good it's a long story but you'll like it if you live on the east coast of America and travel to Hawaii you know that there is a time difference that makes 3 o'clock in the morning feel like 9 o'clock. With that in mind, you will understand that whenever I, the reader, 
the, sorry, the, the writer of this, goes to our 50th state, I find myself wide awake long before dawn. Not only do I find myself up and ready to go while almost everybody else is still asleep, but I find that I want breakfast when almost everything on the island is still closed, which is why I was wandering up and down the streets of Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning looking for a place to get something to eat. Up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stores at the counter and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I mean, I didn't even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. And the fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, what do you want? I told him, a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron and then grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of the restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around, but when everything is out there in the front where I can see it, I would have appreciated it if it used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper. As I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left. And I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said. That's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why? What do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, I told him. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A smile slowly crossed his chubby face and he answered with measured delight, That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. There's a guy got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiley. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who are really nice and kind and no one ever does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry, for that was his name. The birthday cake's my thing, I'll make the cake. So, at 2.30 the next morning, I was back in the diner. I'd picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store, made a big sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes, and I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15 every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 
At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everyone ready, after all I was a kind of MC of the affair, and when they came in we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs seemed to buckle a bit, and her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led over to one of the stores along the counter, we all sang Happy Birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, Happy Birthday, dear Agnes, Happy Birthday to you, her eyes moistened. And then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and she just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did that. Then he handed her a knife and said to her, cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. Cut the cake. And Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if, I mean, it's okay if I kind of, what I mean to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street, a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home and show it to my mother, okay? I'll be right back, honest. And she got off the stool and picked up the cake, carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. And as we all stood there motionless, she left. And when the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. So not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back now, it seems more than strange that a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes, I prayed for her salvation, I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. And when I finished, Harry leaned on the counter and he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry waited a moment and then he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. My friends, we belong to a church like that, don't we? We belong to a church that loves people who've got a real messed up life. And there's an answer for it. They don't have to get neat and tidy. They don't have to sort themselves out. They don't have to become sweet smelling. They don't have to resolve with their problems. They don't have to understand everything. They just have to come. Because this is the message. The message of the church is for everyone. Even at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu. That's what Jesus is trying to get through to them. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Every time I read that story, I pray for that woman, Agnes. I don't know what she's doing now. It's a real story. They're full of real stories. He didn't make them up. Real stories. A woman who would discover, perhaps, this God of grace who comes, not to the neat and tidy, who think they've got no problems, but to those who know the life's a mess. That's the message we have. This wonderful Saviour, this wonderful Saviour, who saves people like you and me, and everyone else. This is our message, my friends. 
hold on to it tight, but then give it away. Trust yourself to that. Every time you mess up, know that God says, we can start again. It's okay, we can start again. You can have a fresh start. And this is the message we take to other people. Not a condescending message, not an aggressive message, not a message of hate and violence, but a message of a God who cares and loves and who can transform people's lives. So just like close, do you want to bring to in your mind someone in your circle of, of connections, maybe someone in your family, maybe a neighbour, or someone you regularly meet, who's not yet in the kingdom of God, and for whom you've been praying? Just have them in your mind. As we say, Lord, we've been singing some wonderful songs to you that have expressed our deep love and heartfelt gratitude to you. And with all our hearts, the person we have holding in our minds at the moment, Lord, we want them to know how much you care for them. We want them, Lord, to know how much you're willing to do for them, to set them free from the bondage of sin and to make them free indeed, to give them the liberation of the children of God. And if we can be in any way of any help in that regard, Lord, in addition to praying, then we make ourselves available to you, Lord. Because our heart's desire is they too should know this wonderful Saviour who loves them. In Jesus' name. Amen.